Our text this Lord's Day begins in Mark 15:5, but we will spend the bulk of our time in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 11. Let me read for you those two passages of Scripture. The first passage of Scripture ends the trial of Christ before Pilate, the first time that he appeared before Pilate. And it says there, But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. The second passage of Scripture found in Luke is the only account that gives us this trial before Herod. And so this is where we find in our progression chronologically of the various trials of the Lord Jesus Christ before the Sanhedrin, first of all, the ecclesiastical court, and then before the Roman court, and before the civil magistrates. In Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 6, we read, When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged into Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again. To Pilate. <clears throat> when people hear of Christ and the free offer of his salvation to all sinners, there is often one of three reactions that will be manifested by those who refuse to receive by faith alone that glorious gift of everlasting life. These three reactions that might be found in people today are interestingly manifested by three characters in the trials of Christ. Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod. Like Caiaphas, many will be angered by the claims of Christ and condemn him. O man of Galilee, who do you think you are making such claims about yourself? They exclaim. Like Pilate, many will consider the risk too great to their own reputations, to their own status, to receive him by faith alone as their own Savior. But, on the other hand, they will not want to forthrightly condemn him. These proclaim, look at what it would cost me to become a Christian. And like Herod, many will be more amused by the miracles they have heard that he has performed and will not receive him because he will not dance 
to their music. He will not perform a miracle for them. And these will declare, I played the flute for you, Christ, but you didn't dance for me. You didn't play my game. The result is the same in each of these reactions to Christ. They all refuse to trust in Christ alone for their eternal salvation. Well, this Lord's Day, we shall consider how Herod was amused by Christ as he interrogated him and how even we who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can fall into the same awful sin. Let us consider the following main points from our text today. First of all, Christ is sent to Herod. Mark 15, 5, and then Luke 23, verses 6 through 7. Second, Christ is interrogated by Herod. In Luke 23, verses 8 through 10. And thirdly, Christ is mocked by Herod. Luke 23, 11. Christ is sent to Herod. We've read from Mark 15:5 how at the conclusion of his trial before Pilate, Christ having said nothing, Christ having not defended himself against all the accusations brought against him by the Sanhedrin, Pilate marveled. And now Pilate hears from the Sanhedrin that he has spread his teaching from Galilee to Jerusalem, which is in Judea. He spread it far and near. And when Pilate hears of Galilee, Pilate in his mind says, here's my chance. Here's my chance to get rid of this particular individual. Here's my opportunity to remove myself from this very uncomfortable, difficult situation where I cannot find anything upon which to condemn this man. And yet the Jews, the Sanhedrin, have so much clout that they could report this to Caesar saying, I allowed one who was a rival to Caesar, who they say said this about himself, they could report this to Caesar and Caesar could take his, his anger upon me and remove me from office. You recall that Palestine under the rule of Rome was divided into three distinct territories. Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, and Samaria in between. Now, although Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he spent his childhood and adulthood working in Nazareth of Galilee. Furthermore, the vast majority of Christ's ministry was likewise spent in the northern province of Galilee. It would appear that Christ primarily spent time in Judea and in Jerusalem on very special occasions. For example, when he came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when he came to observe and to celebrate the various feasts and festivals of the Jews. 
And he took opportunity, of course, at all of these times to heal the sick, to teach concerning the kingdom of God, to spread the gospel for which he had come to die. When Pilate learns, therefore, from Christ's accusers that Jesus is from Galilee, Pilate sees this as his chance to pass responsibility for trying the case for himself, uh, trying the case himself, and passing that on to Herod. Pilate thus sends Christ to Herod, who happens to be in Jerusalem at that time, no doubt to to observe or to celebrate the Passover himself. Here was a slick political move by Pilate to escape the pressure he felt from the Sanhedrin. Well, who was Herod? to whom Pilate now sent Jesus. Herod Antipas, as was his full name, before whom Jesus now stood, was the son of Herod the Great, that despicable ruler who murdered the male infants and toddlers of Bethlehem in an attempt to murder the young Lord Jesus, whom he thought to be a rival king to himself. Now, the son was really no better than the father, as we shall see. The Herod before whom Christ was tried was an immoral ruler devoid of all righteousness. This Herod seduced his brother's wife, Herodias, and married her, which John the Baptist, you recall, declared to be an incestuous relationship contrary to the law of God as found in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16. And this is what got John in trouble with Herod. Herod then imprisoned John for doing so. And then there was the occasion you'll recur or remember, recall that in which Herod was seduced by the daughter of Herodias who danced before him and granted to her whatever request that she would make of him, even to half of his kingdom. And in that particular time, the daughter of Herodias presented to Herod her request, having gone first to her mother, that she wanted the head of John the Baptist upon a a silver platter. And so Herod, manipulated, unwilling to take a stand, having no moral courage, because he, the scripture says he knew that John was a holy and a righteous man, he nevertheless acceded to this request. You may also recall when Herod learned of the ministry of Christ, and how the masses of people followed him, Herod believed his worst fears had come upon him, and that John the Baptist had risen from the dead, that he was reincarnated in Jesus Christ. Herod's immoral cunning and scheming to retain power and his riches was also recognized by the Lord Jesus Christ, who in 
earlier in his ministry, called Herod, this Herod, a fox. This is the judge before whom Christ would now appear in the second stage of the Roman trial. Since Herod's capital was in Galilee, rather than in Jerusalem, he was likely there, as I said earlier, due to the observation in this part of the Passover. What an irony. What a blindness is cast over his eyes, for he is in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he does not even recognize God's Passover lamb, who now stands before him. Dear ones, here is the picture of a spineless, weak ruler who had the power to deliver John the Baptist from death and had the power, at least influence, to deliver Jesus from death if he had chosen to use it. But by his lack of moral courage, he joined with another very weak leader, namely Pilate, to fulfill the desires of the Sanhedrin and putting Christ to death, or at least offering no resistance to it. Herod also shamefully joined with Pilate in fulfilling Psalm 2, as we see mentioned in Acts chapter 4. If you would like to look at that fulfillment stated by the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and following. There we read, this is after the apostles had themselves been taken before the before the Sanhedrin and told not to speak in the name of Christ anymore, not to teach in his name any longer. And it says in verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea in all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And so, Pilate's involvement and Herod's involvement in conspiring together to not acquit and justify, but become partakers of the sins of the Jews, brings about the fulfillment of the prophecy made in Psalm 2. Dear Christian, I would ask you, are you easily manipulated by others to do what is wrong at work as was Herod by Herodias in the case of John the Baptist? Does the pressure of 
family lead you to compromise what you know is true, as it did with Herod? Men, you are called to be leaders in the home and in the church. How will you use your leadership? Will you, by God's grace, set a a straight course for your family, always being guided, of course, by the Holy Scriptures? Or rather, will you be guided by your own emotions, or by your own pleasures, or by the emotions and pleasures of others, contrary to the Holy Scripture? Husbands and fathers, your heart should not be unchangeable when you know you have been wrong in a decision, obviously. Or when there is more than one way to work out a problem in the family. should never be unretractable. Your mind should not be like a rock unwilling to seek out the advice of your wives. Leaders should always be easily entreated and approachable. But at the same time, you should not be easily manipulated by the tears or angry words of your wife or your children to do what you believe to be contrary to God's will. You are the leaders in your home. You are the leaders in the church. You should seek patiently and lovingly to instruct them from God's word as to why you believe a certain course to be right. The frustration that often comes from wives and children in not setting before them a straight course can be attributed to a husband many times who can be manipulated. But the frustration, dear ones, also comes from husbands who do not even attempt to set the straight course before them. And that husbands and leaders in the church do. Wives and children, let me say something to you as well. Be careful that you avoid manipulating your husbands and fathers by your tears, by your temper, or by your silence. If you would be a help to them, as God calls you to be, let him know you too only want to do what is right and agreeable to God's word. Let him know that you are there to study with him. Let him know that you are there to encourage him. Let him know that you are there to pray with him and for him. Thus Jesus now stood before Herod, the weak and compromising and manipulated ruler. Herod, the immoral leader, and Herod, the pleasure-seeking leader. Our second main point is this. Christ is interrogated by Herod. Look with me at Luke 23, verses 8 through 10. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him. And he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. 
When Herod heard that Christ had been sent to him by Pilate, Herod, interestingly enough, greatly rejoiced. That's what the term here, when it says exceeding glad, really means he rejoiced greatly at this news. Now, he did not rejoice because he would now have the opportunity to hear the truth from the sinless Son of God. He did not rejoice because he wanted to receive by faith Christ as Savior. He rejoiced because he had heard of all the miracles which Christ had performed. And Herod wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to entertain him with some extraordinary acts of power. Look with me for a moment at Luke chapter 9, where we see that from this passage of Scripture that this had been the desire for Herod, from, uh, that Herod had had for some time. Luke 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, that is, by Christ. And he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. Herod wanted, dear ones, to be wowed, if I could use that term, wowed by Christ's miracles, but not changed by Christ's truth. In a similar manner, Herod had taken great joy in listening to John the Baptist, you'll recall, who was his prisoner for a season, according to Mark 6.20. There we read, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and, and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. He even did some of the things that John told him to do. And he heard him gladly. <clears throat> Perhaps Herod, being the weak, immoral coward that he was, found himself fascinated by men of real moral courage who would not compromise the truth even to save their own lives like John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Herod had been in the presence of, of the two greatest witnesses to the truth. Certainly Jesus Christ, no one would, would uh, uh, doubt that to be the case with regard to Christ. And John being the forerunner of Christ, the immediate forerunner of Christ, certainly has to be placed high in the list of witnesses for Christ. And although he enjoyed hearing of the power of their words and deeds, he rejected the truth of God, which they proclaimed. Dear ones, I exhort you today, I implore you, be not like Herod in hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. And even in rejoicing in the miracles of Christ as demonstrations of great power, but in never receiving Christ 
as your own Savior from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. It is so easy to sit back and enjoy a good sermon that is organized, that is well-reasoned, that is preached with conviction, but do no more than that with the infallible truth of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, if we do not embrace the truth by faith as being true and as being our very life and health and strength from the Lord Jesus Christ, if we do not go forth and practice it in our lives, seeking by God's grace to be conformed to it, we show ourselves, I would submit to you in this regard, we show ourselves to be a Herod, to be like Herod, and being willing to hear it, but not willing to receive it by faith and practice it in love and in obedience. Our sins in this regard, I would suggest, are more aggravated than even those who refuse to hear the truth at all. To simply want to be amused by the truth, to go through the motions of hearing the truth and doing nothing with it is far more serious than those who simply want nothing at all to do with the truth. Note next concerning the second phase of this Roman trial before Herod in Luke 23.9 that Herod questioned Christ with many words, the text says. The emphasis here is upon the verb questioned and it's not that, that Herod asked a single question. That is not the, the tense of the verb does not indicate that. But rather, it indicates a continual asking of questions. And then it adds with many words thereafter. Knowing Herod's character from previous accounts of him in the scriptures, it was not the truth which Herod sought by asking all of these questions, but more likely questions concerning the source of Christ's great power to perform these miracles, much like like Delilah seeking to find the source of Samson's strength. Curiosity. Simply wanting to know and to see Christ perform, as it were, as an actor, as an entertainer before him. To do that which he had heard Christ had done so often throughout Galilee. But the Lord Jesus said absolutely nothing to Herod. Not only would Christ not perform a miracle for Herod, he would not even give Herod a word of response. Such curiosity of mind would not be satisfied by the Lord in the least. The Lord Jesus, dear ones, did not come to satisfy the curiosity of unworthy sinners, but to satisfy the holy wrath of God against unworthy sinners. And if that does not cause us to fall upon our faces in awe and wonder, no miracle which Jesus could perform will do so. So many people today are attracted by any news of miracles. Like an amazing stunt performed at a circus. 
The news of miracles draws its crowds. The people, by and large, have missed the whole point of miracles. Miracles, dear ones, are not to satisfy our curiosity. They are rather to humble us before Almighty God. Miracles are to show us our weakness and His greatness. They are to show us our need and His power. They are to show us our insufficiency and His sufficiency. Miracles, dear ones, that are given and approved by God always point to Christ and to the truth of His gospel of salvation. Miracles that are given and approved by God exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as the miracle worker rather than the man himself as being the miracle worker. John the Apostle tells us the very reason for recording the miracles of Christ and his gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Dear ones, we are not simply to sit back and on wonder when we read of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But his resurrection should point us to the fact that he is who he said he was. He is the Savior of man. He is the Savior of guilty and worthy sinners who will place their faith and trust in him. That is what miracles are intended to produce within sinners. It is to draw them to Christ. The Lord Jesus actually commends those who trust in the resurrected Christ and yet have not beheld him with their very own eyes. In John 20, verse 19, with regard to Thomas, you recall, where the Lord Jesus says, and that's chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. I dare say, dear ones, faith in the miraculous will not save a single person from hell. Let me say it again. Faith in the miraculous will not save one person from suffering all eternity in hell. Only faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died to save guilty sinners and who works the miraculous by his almighty power can justify the ungodly. Do we not see here that the Lord Jesus Christ, who mercifully denied not the most poor and helpless of people, of his power to heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, 
the lame, but did not deny his power to the hungry to multiply food, but did not deny his power to the lepers to remove the dreaded disease from them, to cleanse them from leprosy, who did not deny that power to, to remove from people those who were controlled by demons, who did not deny the power from the poor and the helpless to raise the dead, the same Jesus who would not deny the poor and the helpless during his ministry did not gratify the curiosity of this proud and vain prince who desired to witness that mere power. Dear ones, likewise the Lord will not intervene on our behalf to satisfy our mere curiosity, but will do so when we are humbled before an almighty Christ and place our trust in his righteousness and in his mercy and in his power to rescue us. The Sanhedrin were not about to allow Herod to question Jesus without their own input, as we see in Luke 23.10. They were there on the spot. Having begun this travesty of justice in their own fraudulent courts, these Jewish leaders dog Christ every step of the way until his death. They want to make sure that whether he's before Pilate or whether he's before Herod, that they can have all the input by way of their false accusations against Christ. And in spite of the many accusations brought against Christ by these, these religious leaders, we yet have the testimony that Herod found Christ guilty of no crime. In Luke 23:15, Pilate says concerning Herod, no, nor yet Herod, and uh, the, the point being, Pilate says, I, in the previous verse, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching these things whereof you accuse him. Verse 15, no, nor yet Herod has found anything that would condemn Christ, that would make him guilty of any crime. Judas, you recall, told the Jewish leaders that that he himself had betrayed innocent blood. Pilate told the Jewish leaders that he had found Christ innocent of any crime. And now Herod likewise confirms the same thing to the Jews. Now this testimony is for our benefit. Why? Because again it shows and demonstrates to us that Jesus Christ voluntarily voluntarily offered his sinless and holy life as a sacrifice for guilty and unworthy sinners. No one took his life from him. He offered it for us. We who were chosen from the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. Beloved, his willingness to suffer the cruel wrath of man and the just wrath of a holy God was due to his everlasting love for sinners like you and me. May that love 
have the effect of breaking our proud hearts and lead us to live our lives as an expression of gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. Our third and final point is that Christ is mocked by Herod. Luke 23.11 And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. Having received no miracles from Christ as Herod demanded, Herod now resorts to the lowest form of insult, mockery of Christ and his office as a king. Christ would not play with Herod as Herod wanted, so Herod would play with Christ. And so Herod and his men tease and taunt the king of kings and the lord of lords before whom they will one day stand and then the tables will be turned. They mocked their creator by placing upon Christ a splendid robe of royalty. To show anger toward Christ as did the Sanhedrin was to at least treat Christ and his claims seriously. However, to mock the Lord Jesus, as did Herod and his soldiers, was to treat Christ as if he were a joke who could not be taken seriously. He was a mere curiosity to them all. And that was all that he was to them, a curiosity. Dear ones, let me ask you, Do you take the Lord Jesus Christ seriously? How would anyone ever know whether you take Christ seriously or not as they view your life? By your words and whether you defend Him or by your silence in the cause of Christ? By your willingness to defend your favorite star with all of your power with all that's within you but your unwillingness to defend the Lord Jesus Christ and his cause your unwillingness to pledge your allegiance to him and to his kingdom I submit that you can hardly take Christ seriously when he is seldom in your thoughts when you merely go through the outward motions of worship When your prayers in Jesus' name are a mere uttering of words, almost superstitiously uttered and attached to the very end of a prayer. When his sacrifice upon the cross does not move you to faith and love and obedience to him. Dear ones, do we treat the Lord Jesus as one who is irrelevant in our lives? Are we merely curious to know his will for our lives or merely curious to know what he has prophesied in Scripture to occur in the future and yet continue to live the way that we want to live? Or do we want to know these things in order to show in our faith in Jesus Christ? To show and demonstrate our love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Shown to demonstrate our obedience to Christ. 
I ask today, dear ones, how much of Herod is there in your life and in mine? May God reveal the Herod in all of us that we may repent of such an insult to Christ wherein we do not take Christ seriously, wherein Christ is not relevant in certain areas of our lives. In closing, Herod regarded Christ as a mere spectacle to be stared at. Jesus was, however, the king of kings to be submitted to. Dear ones, do you merely stare at Christ? Or do you submit your all to Christ? Are there areas of your life that you yet cling to, that you say, Lord, every other area of my life you may rule over, but this area of my life you may not rule over. This is my area. Don't go meddling with this part of my life. It may be your work. Don't meddle with that. It may be certain sports, activities. It may be movies. It may be your music. It may be your stars in whatever realm, whether movies or music or sports or politics that you admire. You may, it may be your speech that you utter and use every day. Don't go meddling, Lord, with the words that I say. It may be the vulgar things that, that you look at, whether in the computer and movies. It may be the lust of your own heart. It may be your family. Lord, whatever you do, don't touch my family. That's my business. It may be even the ordinances which the Lord has given to us to help us to grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord. We may want to keep them merely as something external and not apply the grace of God that comes to us through them. We may be those who say, Lord, don't touch my health. Don't touch my prosperity. Whatever it is, have we submitted to Christ as King in all areas of our life? Herod played with Christ, dear ones. And one day Herod will stand before Christ with whom we will no, no longer play. Christ will not be trifled with. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is a gracious Savior. But He is not a mere spectacle. He's not there for our amusement. He's relevant to every area of our life. He's to be taken seriously. Let us not be like Herod and treating Christ as a spectacle. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.